welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We talk to researchers and practitioners of behavioral science in order to learn a bit more about why we do what we do. And we try to peel back the layers in order to get a deeper understanding of what drives us as humans. And in today's episode, we were very pleased to interview one of the giants in behavioral science. Okay, Tim, before we begin, I have a question for you. All right, go ahead. All right. Have we ever interviewed anybody that I had cited in my dissertation before? I, I don't know. I'm not an expert in your dissertation enough what? to answer that. <laughs> Why you Don't you have my dissertation memorized? My I have, gosh. I have the dissertation memorized, but not the citations. Oh, so. okay. Okay. Well, there's only 10 pages of citations in there. So, so roughly. So, the answer to that is yes, we have interviewed wow. uh, you know, Dr. Scott Jeffrey, who was, I, I think, our third interview on, on the show. But now, now with with uh, Gary Latham, we have interviewed two. Oh, cool. That, that's that's very cool. Uh, you know, Dr. Gary Latham has been conducting research in the field of organizational psychology since the late 1960s and has over 200 research publications and several books on the topic of goal setting. He is the former president of the Canadian Psychological Association, the Society for Industrial Organizational Psychology, which is PSYOP. Some people know it by that. And the president of work and organizational psychology, which is a division of the International Association of Applied Psychology. He's currently the Secretary of State Professor of Organizational Behavior at the Rotman School of Management and the University of Toronto, and is also the editor of the journal Organizational Dynamics. He is the only recipient of these two awards, both the Distinguished Contributions to Science Award and the Practice from PSYOP Award. He's, he's really quite amazing. And he is also only the second researcher that we've talked to on behavioral grooves that has been cited in your dissertation, Kurt. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure he's most proud of being cited in my dissertation of all of the accolades that, that uh, are there. I'm sure that raises the, the bar for him. I'm pretty sure that that might not be the case. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're you're probably right about that. But but we were thrilled to talk with him, and our conversation did not disappoint. The easy manner in which he explains his research is super refreshing. The stories he tells of his own biases and how the data he found shifted his mind uh, is illuminating and just downright fun. Yeah, you know, and normally at this point, we would ask you to go out and leave a review or share this episode, but we're so excited that we just want you to be able to listen to Dr. Gary Latham. Okay, so without further ado, we ask you to sit back in your favorite listening chair with a specific goal in mind of listening all the way through this episode and enjoy our conversation with the distinguished Dr. Gary Latham. Dr. Gary Latham, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you for having me. We are super excited to have you here. As uh, we've mentioned in our pre pre thing, you're one of our heroes in in this field. So we are excited. And as that, we always start with a speed round. So Tim, I I will start. Right. Go ahead. You go right ahead, Kurt. All right. So, do you prefer coffee or tea? That's a complicated answer. I've had a tremor in my hand since around grade eight, and the caffeine makes the tremor worse. So I don't like either one. Oh, okay. There you go. That's the first first answer that way. Okay. Uh, would you prefer to have dinner with your favorite living musician or favorite living sports player? 
sports player. Okay. Inductive or deductive theory building? Which, oh, which is better? Strong answer. Inductive. <laughs> followed by deductive. Well, I'm sure I want to get into that later, but that, that, I figured you might have a strong opinion on that one. Okay, last, last speed round question. Should managers tell employees to just do their best or should they provide them with specific stretch goals for them to achieve? No, well, that leads into the whole hour conversation. So <laughs> urging people to do their best is all but a waste of time. Which is what we thought you might say on that one. So for our listeners, could you just tell us, tell them a little bit about goal setting theory and some of the research that you've done on that? Well, this do your best phraseology is part of the theory. And here's the problem with it. It's just plain too vague. Mm. So when you urge someone to do their best, some of us are going to pat ourselves on the back undeservedly. And others of us are going to uh, kick ourselves in the pants undeservedly because it's too vague. How do you know when you've done your best? So I can tell you when, my, when I was a kid, my father was always saying, son, all I'm asking you is to do your best. And he would always get so aggravated me, with me after he would see how poorly I washed the car. Now, if he had set a specific goal, he might have died a much happier man. <laughs> so even to washing your car, we need to have specific goals on this. Absolutely. Whether it's grades in school or washing your car or interactions with your partner, you need to have some specific goals. Well, and early on, a lot of your work got into stretch goals. What was, the, what was the, the kicker that got you into not just having a goal, but having a stretch goal? Well, stretch goals really uh, was urged by Jack Welch when he was CEO at General Electric. And the idea was to get you to start thinking outside the box, to coin a phrase. So you weren't penalized in any way for failing to attain a stretch goal. It was really more an aspiration. And I know a lot of the work that you, that started this was in the forestry industry. And I, I'm fascinated. I've heard this story a couple of times, but the first research that you did with, I think it was some Pultwood Association uh, and, and doing a American summer. Pultwood Association. There you go. And was it a summer internship that you were doing up there and doing I some work? I started as a research assistantship the summer of my first year in the master's program at Georgia Tech. And my uh, major professor, Dr. Ronan, had been hired as a full-time consultant. And he said he would take the job on condition that they would hire me for the summer. (laughs) And it turned into a master's thesis, which then turned into my very first job as their staff psychologist. Well, I don't know how many of the listeners or you two remember the movie Deliverance with Burt Reynolds. I do remember that, yes. Well, the so-called... bad guys uh, in the movie were, honest to goodness, pulpwood producers. They weren't actors. They were the real thing. I did not know that. Trouble with these pulpwood producers, if you're uh, an industry giant like International Paper Company or Warehouser Company, you're dependent upon these people for your raw material wood in order to make paper. And these guys might work zero days one week, one or two days the next week, all five days the next week. They could never depend on them to improve their productivity. 
So my job was to come up with something that uh, would not only improve their job performance, but would also make the job interesting, fun, increase job satisfaction, what have you. And I stumbled on to goal setting reading psychological abstracts, which shows you what a boring kid I was in those days. <laughs> After our own hearts, actually. <laughs> so what, what abstract was it that caught your attention that got well, you? There was a series of abstracts by, I only had my master's at the time. I didn't have my PhD yet. But there was a young kid out of Cornell University who had done some experiments in the laboratory. And the task involved maybe making toys out of tinker toys or uh, adding, uh, make, solving addition problems or making words out of anagrams along that line. And he found if you gave people a specific goal as opposed to urging them to do their best, their performance was much better, both in quantity and quality. And uh, this kid's name was uh, Ed Locke, and I ended up uh, contacting him. And uh, we've been working together since uh, around 1974. We published our first article in 1975. And uh, here's a little anecdote for you. He's outlasted one of my wives, and I've outlasted one of his. So we're really a great odd couple. Oh my gosh! And you have you and and the work with 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 Dr. Locke have been you know seminal in in this research. Yeah, thank you. Um, so so you guys have done amazing things with that. Can you help our, our listeners understand a little bit about goal setting theory? Uh, just the, the the tenets of it. What are the the main pieces of goal setting theory? What does it say? And and how do we how do we apply it? Well, first, there's different types of goals. Okay. So one uh, we just discussed, it's attitudinal, and that's the do your best. And uh, we've just dumped on that and said it's all but worthless. Uh, a second, which most people are familiar with, is a performance goal where the focus is on the outcome. So the outcome can be your golf score, it can be a productivity measure, what have you, grades in school. Third goal is a learning goal where the focus is on process. Uh, come up with strategies, plans, procedures, systems that's going to enable you to perform well. Then the next one is a behavioral goal, and that's usually derived from a job analysis. So a simple behavioral goal, if you're a salesperson, is uh, look the customer in the eye, smile, uh, listen closely to what the customer is asking. Those are behavioral goals. And then the one that you two seem to be most interested based on the emails I received from you is a prime goal where the goal is in the subconscious and you're not aware of its influence on you. Now, the theory says specific goals lead to way higher performance than a general goal such as do your best. And the next statement, which will raise some eyebrows of listeners, is that higher goals lead to higher performance. Now, that is said, and there's over a thousand experiments to prove this, it's said on condition that, or I'll say there's boundary conditions for that statement. So higher the goal, higher the performance, if, first boundary condition, ability. So... 
if I took it at face value, I'd say, wow, higher goal, higher performance. This is the first of May. I think I'd like to be a billionaire by the end of the month. Well, that's ridiculous because I lack the ability. I don't have the financial acumen. In fact, I can almost guarantee you when I invest in a stock, it goes down, not up. I <laughs> don't know whether it's legal, but I was going, thought maybe I should write CEOs and say, if you don't pay me a million dollars by the end of the month, I'm going to invest in your stock. And, and I can prove it to you within a month. And I just think, well, I'll have to check with lawyers to see if it's, if it's true. So the boundary conditions, you've got to have ability. Uh, number two, you have to have goal commitment. Can't be just something you say, oh, I got to lose weight this month. Well, really, what's your specific goal and how committed are you to it? You need feedback. So you need to know uh, how well you're progressing. Do you need to change your plan or modify your plan for attaining that goal? Without feedback, you're lost. And you need to have the situational resources. So example is today, we set a specific goal that on May, uh, what is today, May 4th? May 4th. So yeah. a specific goal is going to be 10.30 May 4th. But if we don't have the resources and we can't get technology to work and we were really, <laughs> really sweating there for about five minutes, uh, then we're not going to attain our goal of having this podcast on uh, May 4th. So yeah. situational resources are also important. Now, given those four, specific goals are better than vague goals and higher goals are better than easier goals. What about the role of uh, self-selection, uh, in, in, especially as it relates to commitment? Just uh, how important is that? Well, there are three ways off the top of my head you can set a goal. It can be assigned. Mm-hmm. It can be set in a participatory manner between you and your boss or you and your team, or it can be self-set. Now, self-set goals are excellent. However, there's always howevers. (laughs) In organizational settings, self-set goals often are not as challenging or difficult for the person or team as the goal that is set in a participatory manner or a goal that is assigned. Oh, by as an aside, or I'll forget to tell you this, the nice thing about participatory goals is not necessarily that goal commitment is higher, it's that the goal itself is often higher when you set a participatory goal. And going back to the theory, higher the goal, higher the performance, and that's exactly what the evidence shows. Yeah. Well, I know Tim has done some work uh, with, with organizations around goal setting and various different methodologies where they have uh, individuals have options to pick for their goals. They have a lower, a moderate, and then a high goal. And Tim, I know some of your research shows that people actually do pick some of those higher goals um, when they're given that selection criteria. Well, particularly if they're doing it in front of the team or their boss, because no one wants to look like a wimp. Yeah. Well, and, and the rewards are algorithmic in in this particular model. So they they ramp up exponentially rather than, um, you know, just on a piecemeal basis. So there is a a tremendous incentive to go for the highest goal and the vast majority of participants end up self-selecting a higher goal too. Excellent. Thank you for that. Now that leads us into the what we really wanted to talk about 
which is goal priming. Uh, and I know uh, you talked a little bit about that uh, in the intro here, but can you, again, for our listeners, help them understand what goal priming is? Okay, I'll, I'll give you, unfortunately, an academic answer, and then I'll give, you, uh, I'll, I'll give it to you so the listeners can grasp it quickly. And uh, I'll say up front, I thought this was all total blarney. And that's <laughs> what got me uh, interested. I wanted, it was very popular, and it still is, in social psychology. And I wanted to make sure that this silliness didn't enter into industrial organizational psychology. Wow. So wow. I said to my doctoral student, and you're going to ask me about it later on because I read your email. Her name is Amanda Shantz. She's now a professor in a university over in Ireland. And she was looking for a, doc, for a dissertation. I said, Amanda, this is win-win. If we can show this is all nonsense, you'll be famous. And if it works, and I promise you it won't, I'll eat the computer paper. You show me that it works. But we'll keep this garbage from coming into organizational psychology. And I have to tell you, the computer paper was hard to swallow. I am shocked to this day. It was published. The first paper was 2009. We've probably published 15 or so papers since then. And, uh, well, here's what it says. Here's the academic answer. That situational cues, now what, what's a situational cue? It could be a word. It could be a photograph. It could be something you see as you're walking along the street. The situational cue activates something that is stored in your memory, activates it, and then influences your behavior, meaning, I think I'll go do such and such, and you're totally unaware that this cue is influencing your behavior. Now, goal-setting theory is based totally on awareness. Say so here I've been working with pulpwood producers and engineer scientists and all sorts of industry people since uh, 1968. And here I am in 2008 and saying, this is totally antithetical to all my research for all these years. And it's garbage. And here's why it's garbage. Here's what happens. Your listeners will like this. We randomly assign people to conditions. We say to half of them, Dr. So-and-so is late coming back from lunch. Why don't you just sit here in his laboratory? You go to the other half, you say the same thing when they come along. They're called the control group. Say, Dr. So-and-so is late, but why don't you go sit in his laboratory? Now, with the experimental group on the coffee table in the laboratory are these magazines just sitting there, and they have to do with exercise, nutrition, uh, taking good care of yourself, health, that sort of thing. They're all piled on top of each other. The other half, the control group, they see things having to do with rocks and trees and that sort of thing. Now, 20 minutes later, the research assistant walks in and says, gee, I'm awfully sorry. Dr. So-and-so is still late. Must have had a long lunch. 
But anyway, you may be hungry. I have some food to offer you. And on the tray of food is an apple or a chocolate. Now, the people in the experimental condition, guess what they chose? With the health magazines and the exercise magazines, they chose the apple. Now, I'm going to be 75 years old this year. I have never in my life chosen an apple over a chocolate, nor have I ever seen anyone. <laughs> and in the control condition, everybody chose the chocolate. All right, so now you sit down with them one-on-one, -on -one and you say, did you notice the magazines on the coffee table? And some people said yes, and some people said no, because they're just sitting there. Like, I could ask you, by the way, you've got some books on your shelf. I can see it behind you. On the bottom left-hand corner, what are the books? Well, you probably haven't looked at You know they're there. Yeah, so I couldn't tell you. What was, the, uh, what was the subject matter of the books? No one could tell us. No one could, uh, no one could tell the social psychologist. So they're completely unaware of the subject matter, Yet, somehow, when they were looking around the room, waiting for this professor to show up, they must have glanced at the books, and unknowingly it registered in their subconscious, and then when it's time to figure out what you're going to eat, it influences the choice. Well, I won't bore you with any more experiments, but there's a lot more like that by social psychologists. I said, if I have ever read baloney in science, this is it. <laughs> so here's what I decided to do. We have in science what's called, I hate these terms, but uh, nevertheless, they're used, strong versus weak situations. Mm -hmm. And they don't mean good versus bad. Strong means everyone pretty much behaves the same way. So, for example, if you go to a cocktail party uh, on Saturday night or a cocktail party in your business, people generally act in a very polite way. You don't really know who they are until you go and live with them and see them what they're like early in the morning and late in the evening to see who is this person really. Everyone pretty much behaves the same. So I chose a strong situation called raising money from donors. The employees, they receive directions in writing from management, and everybody reads the same thing when they're on the phone trying to get donors to give money. So I go, aha, this was sneaky on my part. This will make sure everybody's the same. It eliminates individual differences. Personality doesn't matter. You're just reading from the top. Dear Mr. and Ms. So-and-so, I'm calling on behalf of, we would like you to give money. It's exactly the same. And I randomly assign experimental and the control group. I go, man, Amanda, this is a done deal. And they do this for three hours. Now, the experimental group has a watermark. And the watermark is a person, it's actually a woman, but the hair is, her hair is cropped, so you can't tell whether it's a she or a he. But it's a racer, you can tell it's a racer, breaking through the finish line. She's winning the race. These people who are trying to raise money, we did it for their entire work shift, which was three, four hours. Mm -hmm. 
we now analyze the data. Damn, am I allowed to say damn? <laughs> yes, you are. Oh, damn, it worked. <laughs> there was no comparison. Within the very first hour, the people who saw the watermark of the racer, they raised way more money. Now I'm saying, this couldn't have happened. And when we then sat down with each employee one at a time, and we said, what do you think was the purpose of us asking you to look at this watermark? Now, you know what most of them said? They never saw the watermark. Now we go, that's impossible. It's right there. Then uh, there's um, strict rules in university on research, which means you have to debrief plain English, tell them what the experiment was all about. And when we told the employees, by the way, had no idea they were an experiment. It was just another day at work. Yeah. And they broke out laughing, said they never, they said we were too busy trying to raise money than we were in looking at this watermark. So now, I won't bore you with all the details, but we did umpteen other experiments where the photograph is right there in the right-hand corner of the paper or the left-hand corner of the paper. We just move them around, and you can't say you didn't see it. It is totally salient. We get the same results. Those who see the picture, and we did this case over an entire work week. We thought, well, this is probably short term, lasts for a few <laughs> seconds, or in our case, uh, three, four hours. But there can't be anything more to it. With consciously set goals, by the way, I got to put a plug back in with the theory. The effect of the goal on your behavior lasts up to 25 years. This was done at AT&T. With the prime goals, no one's ever done it longer than a full week. And that okay. was done by me and my researchers. And at the end of the week, those who were primed, totally unaware of the effect of that prime on their behavior, the performance went up on the very first day and stayed up for the entire work week. So let me do you one more and then I'll open it up for more questions from you. This is a great one. For some reason, I'm not allowed to tell the name of the company. I don't know why. But the CEO, we talked to the CEO about this. And he, the CEO, sends out kind of a motivational email on Monday morning around 8 a.m. to the troops. And it's a rah-rah type thing, like, you guys are the best, da 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 we said, would you mind if we played with your email before you sent it out? We just, it's usually about 100 words. We're just going to inject 12 achievement type words. Achievement type word would be strive, win, compete. And if you don't like them, you can take them out. But we just want to show them to you. He made no changes, said sounds good. We said now... In fairness, we don't want you to send this out to all your employees. Let's just send them out to half, and we'll randomly select which ones. And the half are going to get these achievement-related words in your motivational speech email. The other half is the control condition. Same speech, but neutral type words versus achievement words. Now, I'm thinking again, I can't believe I'm doing this nonsense. <laughs> I mean, 
I just don't believe it. Oh, by the way, I'm now paranoid. I'm looking around the walls to see what's on my, what, what, what my wife's got hanging on the walls in our living room and what we got in the bedroom hanging up. And I really go, and then I'll also, I'm reading things saying, oh my God, how did this article influence me? But at any rate, at the end of five days, the employees who saw the achievement-related words, no photograph now, just the words, significantly higher productivity than those uh, in the control condition. And I got to tell you, we had trouble, you know, in scientific journals, they're all peer reviewed. Mm -hmm. So they're sent out, uh, the paper is sent out to Pete. You don't know who the reviewers are. The reviewers don't know who the authors are. Uh, The editor certainly knows. And without a, uh, an open-minded editor, the reviewers felt just like we did. They gave us a hard time, tried to reject the papers, and the editor would overrule. And so I'm happy to say the papers uh, were accepted. But that was 2008. Here we are in 2020. And I still have trouble believing what my data show and what I'm publishing. Wow. Why is that? Well, why? Uh, because you did the research. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm supposed to be an objective behavioral scientist. I think it bothers me to, to uh, quite an extent that the three of us are being influenced by things we're totally unaware of. And it, it uh, you know, I might say, gee, I think I should go out and wash my car. Gosh, was that a cue from my father from years ago? Or, uh, <laughs> Yeah, the, the, the autismy of, of our own, you know, self-selection and in, in that my choice is my choice. I'm not being and influenced free will by and yeah, all free will. Yeah. Well, there has been controversy, right? In in the lack of replication of these in the social you know, the social sciences. What what's your take on that? Is there is there value in making sure that these are always replicated exactly, or is there something else that's going on in some of this situation? Well, I'm, uh, I'm going to have to talk out of both sides of my mouth. Okay. <laughs> it's called the skeptics and the uh, believers. And kind of the, the head of the believers, the real champion of all this, the person who got all of this started and then was the brunt of the attacks by the skeptics, is John Barge at Yale University. Yep. And I was totally against his findings <laughs> and on the you, side of the skeptics. You are a skeptic to begin with. Oh, completely. <laughs> and all of the skeptics are from the onset, like I was, cognitive psychologists which, who believe in purposeful behavior and awareness. The whole dichotomy, at some point you're going to ask me about a prompt versus a prime. With prompts, you're aware of the prompt. Uh, When you say to, I've got uh, adorable young grandchildren, and when the five-year-old wants to get up from the table, mommy prompts, did you say excuse me? (laughs) It's a prompt. I have been on the side of the skeptics, but the skeptics like me are looking for ways not to replicate. Mm. And furthermore, gee, I hate to say this, because science, you know, we all have values. You get biases. And editors want uh, journal, uh, journal articles that are going to get lots of attention. 
So if you replicate John Barge, that's ho hum. Mm -hmm. But if you can go, hey, that didn't work, and we tried this, and we tried that, and that didn't work, well, now that's attention getting. So there's a bias in the literature. I wanted to be on the side of the skeptics. I just couldn't get my data. I've never had a single experiment go wrong. <laughs> Depends on how you define wrong, huh? I've never had a single experiment that didn't support John Barch. So needless to say, it's 10, 11 years later. He and I are pretty good friends. We <laughs> email and I, uh, I send him my results to uh, see if uh, I've expressed things properly according to, it's called the automaticity model. Yep. Your behavior is automatic as opposed to thoughtful. So... None of my research has been attacked thus far. I say that with my breath held because there's a person over in the UK who's just requested my data from my latest experiment, and he's going over it with a fine-tooth comb, and he has a long history of successful attacks uh, on the social psychology experiments. Um, I'll give a sneak, uh, he doesn't know this, but all your listeners can know it. So I sent all my data over to somebody else independently and said, now go over this to make sure I dotted my I's and crossed my T's. And uh, she came back and said, yes, you did. Uh, however, you should change this sentence to read this way. It'll be clearer. So we'll see what happens. Contact me in three months or so, and I'll tell you whether I got my... Uh, is close scrutiny. Well, all right. So thank you. That has been uh, very uh, enlightening, I think, on that. the One of the interesting pieces is in, in some of the follow-up research you did with the call centers was using a picture of the woman going through the breaking the ribbon and that, that achievement, but then also having another picture, which was of actually workers that looked like they were in a call center and, yeah. and doing that. And that actually had higher results in yeah. performance. So how do you attribute that? What, where is that going Your from? homework uh, before we <laughs> had this conversation. All right, now go back to the theory. What I wanted to know once I got through chewing the computer printouts is <laughs> do these prime goals behave the same way, do they activate behavior in the same way as consciously set goals? So by 2012 to the present day, that's what I've been doing. Mm. So the theory says the goal should be specific. So what I wanted to know, and I did this study uh, with Ron Piccolo here in Florida at the University of Central Florida. What would happen? We knew the picture of the racer worked, and we had done... Uh, two more exact replications just to make sure that it wasn't a serendipitous finding in some way. So we said, okay, let's do a, let's do a photograph that's context-specific, job-related specific. So we had the control condition. They just read the instructions prepared by management to get donors to uh, loosen up their purse strings. Then... We had the racer, we knew that worked, but we were looking at it, gee, that's more general. It's getting at achievement, and certainly it works, but it's not context-specific to what the employees are doing. So let me tell you that, if you thought it was hard this morning getting us 
work get this podcast working technically, looking for a picture of call center employees. How many, where do you look for those? We went on and on and on. And we've sure enough, there they were with their headphones. Yeah. And they're making calls. And we put them, I mean, we made the photograph salient, by the way. They weren't backdrops anymore. Mm-hmm. And as you just told our listeners, the achievement group beat the heck out of the control condition. And the context-specific group beat the heck out of those uh, who saw the racer. And this was consistent with the theory. Mm. Now, this is interesting because I think about uh, when it comes to rewards, uh, Ron Kivitz has done a lot of work in, uh, in using more hedonic and luxurious rewards than more utilitarian rewards. It's, you know, it draws our attention more. It's sort of more natural to sort of get engaged in the hedonic and, and luxurious rewards than it is in the utilitarian. In some ways, the, 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 the photographs, the images used in the, um, in the context specific almost feel more utilitarian, that they're more familiar or am I thinking about that the wrong way? Well, I don't know. Uh, I don't know because we're still in the embryonic stage. We're goal setting, uh, conscious goal setting. We've been work- looking at for <clears throat> 50 years or so. Um, in organizational settings, we've only been wor- working on, con- on subconsciously set goals for 10 years. Now, we have never tied monetary incentives to subconscious goal setting. Mm. But what we have done is we've looked at satisfaction. Now, here's one that just defies belief. I was working with a uh, woman doing her postdoc. She's from University of British Columbia. She came to University of Toronto to do a postdoc with me. And one night, her husband said, tell me what you're doing with Dr. Latham. So she said, oh, we're looking at these uh, subconscious goals and et cetera, et cetera. And he works, he's a high-level manager in a retail store. And again, for reasons I don't understand, I would think the store would like to be named, but I've been told I'm not allowed to name the store. But it's a, a big retail store across Canada. And he said, I've been having my uh, employees Put, have you ever seen, in fact, you can see it on Facebook when you want to sign your name, and then you can put a happy face, you know, that yep. little yellow sticker, two eyes and a smile. Just a silly sticker. And he says, I have them put uh, a yellow sticker on my customer receipt. What do you think about that? I think, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> who cares? When I get a face uh, a message on Facebook and there's a yellow sticker, I, uh, I'll tell you my reaction is it's goofy. I don't know why you bother to do it. So Yellen has said, any chance I could get three months, six months of your receipts and see what it did? Oh, I left a big thing out. They also do, uh, within a week, they do a customer satisfaction survey. She said, I'd like to get your surveys. So here's experiment one. She looks at six months, no smiley face. Six months after, with smiley face. There's a huge difference in customer satisfaction in favor of this silly smiley face. Now, I don't want to bore your listeners, but this is uh, relevant to coronavirus Uh, You need a control condition so you can draw causal conclusions. 
Otherwise, it could be due to chance. Maybe the pre-happy faces was done in the winter and the the happy faces were done in the summer. It's not a way you can draw a causal conclusion. It's just interesting data. So now we go, let's see what happens if we have a control condition. And we did two more experiments. Oh, by the way, the reviewers are going nuts. The reason we keep doing these experiments is because the reviewers are going, don't believe you, don't believe you, don't believe you. And we're writing back, we don't either, we don't either. And so they want us to take personality measures and find out whether some of the people in the experimental condition, don't forget we did random assignment for heaven's sake. So oh my gosh. You can just tell the reviewers are just coming unglued because we shouldn't have had to do this with random assignment. But we do personality measures to see if they're predisposed to being happy. Oh, we just, they put us through their paces. I'm as flabbergasted as the reviewers but it is conclusive. That silly little happy face made those customers happier than those in the control condition who didn't see the happy face. How is that possible? And I swear it doesn't affect me when I'm doing, uh, looking at FaceTime message, Gary, how are you? And a little smiley face at the end of the, but it does. Yeah. It's, you know, Robert Cialdini, we had him on the show um, before, and he, he has he, your prefluence. And uh, again, some of the standing in front of a flower shop versus standing in front of, uh, you know, any other shop, and people are more likely to, to say yes to a stranger coming up and asking him out for a date. You know, these things that seem beyond reasonable rational way of doing things. And yet they my grandmother, seem... My grandmother, uh, who was born in 1890 and died in 75, was a very wise woman, and she was way ahead of us. <laughs> and if you want to sell your home, bake bread. Yeah. <laughs> you like in that house and that smell of bread? And I don't know of any research on it, but I believe my grandmother. Well, my wife is a real estate agent, and I have told her that very same thing. So you have an open house, bake some cookies or bake some bread. Yeah. Have some nice music going on in the yes. background. Yes. Um, very different thing. So, all right. So, so coming back to application of this. So, we have we we have this uh, goal priming that that can happen. So, if I'm a manager, if I'm a leader in an organization, how do I ethically use this, or or should I be using this? What are the what are the ways that we can apply this insight into the work that we're doing? I was just in a. Uh conference in February we were discussing ethics the ethics because people aren't aware of Mm -hmm. the influence of the goal and these were all behavioral scientists and there's no evidence that goal priming can influence you to do something that's not in your behavioral repertoire so in short to take an extreme, I can't use violent photographs or violent words in a message to suddenly get you to go out and become aggressive, commit murder, start a fight, whatever. There's no evidence for that whatsoever. And at this conference, the consensus was in industry, if you're influencing people to do that which they already do, such as perform their job with higher quantity or higher quality, there's nothing unethical in that. 
And so, for example, Muzak, we've been playing that since the 50s. Now, I have no idea. Makes me crazy. But <laughs> I have no idea if it influences behavior upward or downward. But obviously, somebody thinks it does. Yeah. And um, white noise, we've been doing that in laboratory research forever and ever. And you've got earphones to knock out extraneous noise. How that influence, I haven't seen research on it. But there's, if the research shows it improves your performance, is it now unethical to do so? And so I haven't seen definitive stuff on it, but the consensus, the early consensus in organizational psychology is we're not doing any harm. Now, how do you use it? Well, one we've already covered. As a manager, uh, start using achievement-related words. Do so consciously and see the positive effect it has on employees subconsciously. On satisfaction, again, I would start using words, I'm, well, well, I don't have the data yet, but we're just starting, probably in June, but we're working on the proposal right now, to see if we can increase your satisfaction with your job. We're starting the laboratory with dull, monotonous tasks and seeing if we can influence you through words. So uh, off the top, I can't remember how exactly how it goes, but you're walking to the laboratory and we say the following task is, we think you will find it enjoyable. It is satisfying in these ways, although it may not initially apply to anything in industry, it nevertheless suggests positive. We're just using happy words. Yeah. Now, think of all the managers who are as bored and upset with their job as their employees are and the words they use. I can do the same thing with parents. Yeah. <laughs> parents, you come home in a, bad in a bad mood and you use lots of negative type words. Don't be surprised by the time dinner is served that everybody is behaving in a bad way. <laughs> Well, emotions are contagious to that degree, yes. right? And, yes. and words and how you come across are going to have an influence. Yes. So, yeah. Now, another one I'm very much interested in, but maybe a listener can contact me if they, they too are list, uh, interested. I'm convinced we can prime safety in the workplace. Mm. And certainly no one would find that one unethical. No. And I think through words and photographs placed strategically in various settings in the workplace will have a positive effect. But I haven't found a work site yet where I can do this. And what we would be doing is priming safe behaviors. You know, a trouble with measuring safety is it's an unreliable indicator. It occurs infrequently, difficult to predict, but bam, when it hits... Yeah. Uh, it's often catastrophic. So what, what can we do to increase safe behaviors? I'm looking for an opportunity to do that. I think we can do it. One more, teenage kids as yeah. boys. I get some of those pictures off their bedroom walls. <laughs> <laughs> That's another really good application, I isn't it? I say that hypocritically because I love Farrah Fawcett Major. <laughs> The iconic uh, poster of, of every every uh, person in the 1970s. There we yes. go. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about the, the difference between a prime and a prompt, but I have a very specific question for you. So, so over the course of the past number of years, I have been utilizing my socks 
All right. So I have these socks and they have different pictures on them. Some have, uh, there was, it started with this Einstein socks, right? I had this picture of Einstein on my socks and then I have others that are, are different things. And I would specifically pick out my socks for the day. Um, if I knew I had to give a big presentation or go in front of some clients, various different things, I'd pick the Einstein socks because uh, that's going to, you know, and I, I felt smarter from that. Um, and so I'm wondering, is that, is that a prompt or is that a prime? And here's the, my caveat on that is it, I'm, I'm believing that it is a prompt when I put them on and I'm thinking consciously about them. But throughout the day, when I cross my legs and I just happen to glance down and I see the Einstein on my sock because my, you know, pant leg has come up a little bit and I don't necessarily think about it, is it then become a prime? What, in your opinion, how, how is that working? Okay, before I answer that, here's an experiment that I don't think you've read. It was... Uh published in 2014 in Organizational Behavior and Human Performance with uh, Chow Chan, a kid from China. Okay. Remember we talked about learning goals, but we've never got around to it. You set a performance goal, such as golf score. If you're a good golfer, you want to set a score, such as 89. Okay. I lack the ability. I love golf, but the only time I've ever scored in the 80s when it's a really easy golf course. So ability is a boundary condition. If you don't know how to do something, you need to set a specific learning goal. And the learning goal is come up with three ways, five ways you can improve your putting. Come up with five ways you're going to get a B plus or an A on the upcoming exam. The focus is on process. Would a learning goal that's primed work the same way? Now, you'll see the relationship to Einstein in a moment. We said, what would prime a learning goal? Now, that took a little while in ourselves you know, for us to come up with. We did. Rodin's the thinker. That's right. Hand on chin, the thinker. So now we give people, it's a scheduling task involving when you schedule versus classes, courses at the university. It is so difficult that I can't explain it to you now. <laughs> it has rules. You can only have so many humanities classes before you have to interpret uh, in interject a, a, a science class or another type of core. It's just very, very complicated. So again, random assignment to conditions. One group, they see the racer. That's achievement. The other group, it's Rodin. By this time, I'm through saying, damn, I'm just going, I'll be darned, I'll be darned. <laughs> and the people who saw Rodin did much better on this task than those who saw the racer or the control condition. And again, we probe, we probe, pre-probe. Did you see the image of Rodin? Yes. What effect did it have on your behavior? None. Well, why do you think we included the picture uh, when you were performing the task? I have no idea. So it's an awareness, unawareness. Now, 
going back to Einstein, it's always going to be an awareness dichotomy question. When you first put them on, you were aware, so it's highly conscious. As you're crossing your legs and you glance down on them, it could very easily have a subconscious effect on you. Hmm. You know, if I asked you, hey, I just saw you noticing your socks. What was that all about? And you go, I don't know. I wasn't even aware I was looking at my socks. Yeah. We look at our watch. But yeah. then if I said, what time was it? It was just a habit. It's a reflex. You're always looking at your watch. <laughs> or a famous uh, task is, okay, you just looked at your watch. Okay, don't look at it again. I want you to draw the face of your watch. Oh, yeah. And most of us can't do it. Yeah. Well, I have rodent socks as well, so I might <laughs> be needing to, them. yes. <laughs> yeah, especially if you're taking an exam. <laughs> wow. Uh, Dr. Latham, I wanted to ask you a little bit about music. This, is, this may feel like it's a little bit off topic, but I'm curious about whether you listen to music when you work, whether you, when you're writing or reading or researching, whatever the kinds of things that you, you might consider work. Do you ever listen to music? Uh, yeah, and I've got, to my knowledge, again, no priming uh, research on this that I know of, although you could follow up with John Barge to see if, if he's checked on it, uh, if he's done any. And I know Barge hasn't, but he might know of someone who has. Mm -hmm. And I have a <clears throat> professor friend here at the University of Central Florida who wants to follow up on this. So now I'll answer your question. If I'm kind of bored, in a bad mood, or just have to do... Oh, let's say nothing bothers me worse than having to help my wife around the house. I just detest it. <laughs> just detest it. Uh, I'll put on 50s, 60s rock and roll. And it gets me in a good mood in no time. In no time. If I'm doing research, however, or writing a proposal, I don't have any music on. I've got that. That's when I ha I'm working very intensely. And I've been told if the phone goes off and I answer the phone, I answer it in a very bad way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, again, if it's tedious stuff or things I'm not interested in, I just love. But it's got to be Chuck Berry and that good old rock and roll. Good old 50s, 60s rock yes, and roll, huh? Yes. Well, I do know. And, and Tim, you might know the, the actual study because you have a better better memory for this stuff than me. But there was a study that they did in a consumer setting where they, it was a wine store and they played German music um, for one week. And then the next week they played French music and they tracked the sales of German wines versus French wines. And when they played the German music, more German wines were sold than when they played the French music and more French wines were sold yeah, when they played the French. I would that 99% of the um, customers couldn't tell you what the music was that was being played at the time that they bought the wine. And that was exactly what, what that research was doing. So and there I is, totally believe it. yeah, there's, there's an interesting correlation. And uh, I'm going to write that one down. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll, we'll find that. We'll put it in our show notes and we'll send it to you. Uh, we'll, yes, we'll, we'll please. get that research um, and we'll send it to you. So, so you have that. Please do. So at, in, in the very beginning of, of this, in one of the speed rounds, we asked you about inductive versus deductive, and you had a very strong oh. opinion on, on that. And I know it's a, it's, it's a, lot, a lot of the stuff that you and, and Professor Locke have been working on uh, recently and talking about. So can you tell us why you think uh, inductive versus deductive? I'm not sure thoughts? this is all, it going to be all that interesting to listeners unless they're... Uh, Oh, it, we, have, we have geeks listening to oh, this, Oh, okay. Too. <laughs> so, for you geeks out there. 
Danny Kahneman, he's the uh, Nobel Prize winner. He's a psychologist at Princeton. Uh, he probably summed it up best with two words, theory blindness. Mm. And I think I uh, referred earlier to the fact that all scientists are biased by their values and their beliefs. We strive for objectivity, but nevertheless, we get biased. And I showed my bias uh, earlier on when I said, uh, Amanda, I'll eat the computer printout <laughs> if this comes out because I know it won't. Well, that's a stated bias. Yeah. And so with <clears throat> deduction, there's a tendency to focus on and believe anything that supports your results and then just dismiss anything that doesn't support your theory. And so you'll say, oh, they probably didn't know what they were doing or they got something wrong or look at all the stuff that does support my theory. And worse, oftentimes with deduction, you get support for your theory and then you stop. Mm. when you should continue. Induction is very much an open theory. And you start with data before you can have hypotheses, but you start with data and then you start accumulating it. And then after several years, you say, now let's step back and look at this and let's see if we can't get a theory out of what we're trying to do. Kahneman's uh, it's like Latham, Locke, Locke, and Latham. Well, it's Kahneman and Tversky, Tversky and Kahneman. Tversky, sadly, died of cancer several years ago. Kahneman was giving a talk at Columbia University back in, the, I believe it was late 80s, early 90s. And someone was asking him, what about theory? And all of their work for the geeks out there was inductive, not mm -hmm. deductive. And he came, he, his retort was... Uh, I think a bit caustic, and he said, look, psychologists, scientists should do what they do best, develop interesting experiments, then we'll worry about the theory. Mm -hmm. So induction, accumulate lots of data, then start looking and saying, hey, look, there's some things we can make sense of. This looks like a theory. Now you switch to deduction. So it's induction, deduction. It'd be ridiculous to say deduction is a waste of time. It's just a matter of when you start. Start with induction and go to deduction. All right. So I, I know we're running near the end of time. Uh, thank you very much for for coming on the, the, the podcast. We appreciate it. I think you can tell by my laughter. I had a good time too. Well, this has been fantastic for us, and I know our listeners are going to love this. Um, is there any any last things that you want to let our listeners know? Is there any cool research that you're, you're working on right now or any you know, final words of wisdom? Well, anybody who wants to help me with safety, that's a plea. Anybody who <laughs> wants to help me with uh, job satisfaction within an organizational setting, because right now I'm doing it in laboratories, uh, that's a plea. And uh, other than that, uh, keep an open mind <laughs> and uh, love science. Well, we do, and I think our listeners do too as well. And we are so grateful your time, for your time and your insights, Dr. Layton. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our behavior grooves discussion with Gary, have a free flowing conversation and talk about whatever else comes into our goal primed brains. Yeah. Hot stuff. Wasn't it? Man. Oh that is just, my. Yeah. What a, what a treat. Oh, you know, uh, seriously, Gary was one of the very first researchers that I, 
uh, read and and looked up to and was part of my dissertation, a key part of, of a lot of the work that we have done over the years. And to be able to talk to him and have him be so down to earth and fun and just insightful. Wow. I'm ah, yeah. I, I have permagrin. I am just permagrin on, on this one. <laughs> I so I know I had a conversation with Ed Locke, who he's partnered with for many, many years in the early 2000s. Yeah. Uh, before before I met Dan Ariely or any of these guys. And uh, the conversation with Ed Locke was just totally different from the conversation with Gary Latham. Yeah. And it's just really, really awesome to have this, this conversation with Gary to talk about something that you and I are both really passionate about, and that's goal setting. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really cool. And so with that, what were some of the key pieces from this conversation? And we could go so long and we probably will, but what are some of the key things? I'm sure we're going to go long, but just to, to note the five types of goals was such, he did such a great job of speaking to those five goal types so quickly, so specifically. I just want to just, you know, shout out to, to Gary for just doing such a great job. And it didn't sound like he's just rattling off uh, the same old story, blah, blah, blah. He was creating it in the moment. And that was just really wonderful. So I yeah. just, I just want to say that, but can I get to, can we talk about specific goals lead to higher performance? All right. So uh, yeah, part of goal setting theory, this idea that specific goals are better than general goals. Yeah. And that has been proven over and over. And I loved his American Pulp Wood, you know, story of, Terrific. you know, being able to, 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 to do that. So I, I think it's just great. What what I love about that is how often uh, goal setting misses out on specificity because I see it all the time in the especially in the corporate world when it's you know do your best is so much more common than than you know a, a time sensitive you know um, uh, objective sensitive uh, uh, related goal is just it's still not common enough as far as I'm concerned it we have a long way to go. And and where do you see that? Do you see that in in the corporate uh, incentive world, or do you see it more from a manager just uh, trying to motivate his or her employee and getting them to really be uh, performance based or learning based or whatever it would be? Yeah, more more the latter. I, it sales has kind of figured out because the majority of sales incentives and goals are are so metric based, but. Yeah. Outside of sales, I think there's still a long way to, to go when it comes to building more specific goals to help people focus. And, and of course, the underlying thing for me there is what, what we can imagine specifically, we can focus on, and that's what we accomplish. So I want to get into the, the next piece that he talked about is the higher goals lead to higher performance uh, than easier goals, right? So that's, a again, not really... Uh, too surprising, but the the idea that uh, we don't necessarily set high enough goals for ourselves or for others is is really a key piece here, and I think that sometimes gets into some of the boundary conditions that he talked about. Right this this yeah. idea of ability and making sure that you have the ability or the resources in order to be able to accomplish whatever the goal is, and his idea of you know making a million dollars within a month if you don't have you know the resources to do that that's that's highly unlikely or to shoot a golf score of 75 when your average is 98 probably not going to happen in, in a near term future that being said 
you know, there's an other aspect of it, which is commitment. And how do you get people to commit to those goals and making sure that they have buy-in? That's one of the pieces in the line of work that I've seen is we have a, a push down goal from uh, up above in whatever situation you're doing, mostly in sales. And people believe that A, that goal is so out of whack. There is no way that I would ever be able to achieve that. We don't have the resources, the time, whatever it would take. There's just too much incremental uh, thing on that. So they they discount it or they're, they're so non-committal to it because of maybe because they feel that it's out of reach, but for whatever other reason, it's out of reach. And so there's a big miss, I think, from organizations is really working on how do you get people to understand? Because most of these goals, at least in my opinion, or in my experience, not opinion, in my experience, there's research behind how they set these goals. And yes, they may be stretched, they may be out there, but there is data to support that most people can meet them or there's the potential to meet those within that territory that they're, they've been given. And I think a lot of the miss is in how managers communicate that and how they're explaining how these goals were developed and or the potential that you have within your marketplace and how you go about achieving those goals and what you can do in order to achieve those goals. And it's a huge miss because if people actually wrap their hands around how do you train and communicate to that, you'd have a much better performance. Uh, another one of the misses in that category is the the way that we calculate the ratio between the amount of effort it's going to take and the kind of reward that we're going to get. And I think that designers of those programs have their rational hats on and miss, as you said, they're missing giving good reasons because we are reason-seeking machines. We want a good reason. And part of that reason shows up in this ratio calculation that I think Yana Gallus and Bruno Frey talked about this really, really well. Uh, and uh, without that, we end up dis disenfranchising people. Yeah. You know, they, they, they just don't engage. And, and so they they don't care. They yeah. don't care. Yeah, it's get, like way too much work for the little bit that you're going to give me. It's one of the reasons that, you know, we've done a lot of work around non-cash incentives for short-term contests and taking the monetary part out of it is partly because you're then re you're, you're taking out those calculations of, wow, you're asking me to do probably another 50 hours of work and you're giving me a $300 prize? Well, what is that per, that's like $2, $3 per hour. Uh, there's no way I'm going to do that versus, you know, taking that whole calculation out and saying, no, you're going to win this grill and this grill is really cool or some, something equivalent to that. Uh, which I think again, gets into how people commit to those, those goals. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Going back to the, the communication part of this, there's and we'll talk about this too in some of the the goal priming pieces i think communication around incentives from what i've experienced is piss poor it mm -hmm. is horrid so particularly when it comes to goals goals are always so misunderstood how goals are set are misunderstood it's the number one complaint 
when we go out and survey sales forces, the right. number one complaint is goals and how goals are set and how my goal isn't fair and there's no way that I can achieve it. And 90, maybe 80% of that, in my opinion, is not that the goals are set wrong or that you can't achieve it. It's how you communicate those goals and how you support people in getting them to understand what they need to do in order to achieve those goals and how far they've already come. Because we tend to anchor in on the the, that one goal that seems so high and so far out there, but we don't realize how far we've already come and what we've already accomplished. We could go on a whole time uh, on this because I want to get yep. to another part that we talked about. And I want you to talk about this is this idea of the self-set goals. And I know you've done a lot of work with um, those types of, of programs and, and with BI Worldwide, they have the, the patented goal quest component that you helped in really taking to market and a number of other factors around that. So when he was talking about those self-set goals and this idea of participatory goals, you know, a thing that came to my mind was, uh, you know, is the goal quest, this idea of offering up three choices for people of three different goals that are beyond kind of their normal run rate. And is that more of a participatory goal or is it a self-selecting goal? What, what's your take on that? Well, I've, framed it in the past as being sort of a choice architecture thing, that it ends up being self-selected within the parameters the sponsoring institution has decided are appropriate, as you said, three levels above sort of a baseline run rate. And so I've tended to think of it as it's a choice architecture thing. I mean, if, if, if mom comes to you and said, well, would you rather have broccoli or asparagus or, um, or lettuce you know, for lunch? you got a choice architecture thing going there and she's saying she's basically saying you can't really have candy and i want my chocolate chip <laughs> cookies why can't i have chocolate chip cookies and so uh, i tend to think of that as i'm still making the decision even though even though it is it's certainly been set up for me by someone else well and i'm wondering so he talked about participatory goals versus self-select right. goals versus you know push down upon goals and again along the lines of commitment and i'm wondering if there's a a semblance and it may just be a little tangential piece to this that by offering that choice it's not necessarily a, you don't get to select a, a goal out of you know, thin air and say, oh, I'm going to just do X. Nope. Not you're, an infinite number, number of levels. There's right. You have, a, you have three levels. Uh, and, and given that, is that more of a participatory then? Because I'm participating in the goal that I get. It's not being told to me and I don't get to pick it willy nilly out of anything. It's kind of this, this, it's not necessarily fully where you and I are going back and forth about what are the appropriate goals and let's think about this and let's, you know, examine all of right, this. Right. But there is a part where the the sponsoring company is saying, here are three goals that you get to choose from. Your mother is saying, here are three vegetables that you get to pick from. Is that better? And is that more participatory than saying, here's the one goal that you have versus like your mother saying, we have broccoli today. And you're going, ah, I don't want broccoli. You know, you may not want asparagus either, but you know, lettuce, hey, I might like lettuce, uh, but I don't get that choice. So I'm not participating in those decisions. I, I'm just wondering if it's a different way of thinking about this. 
I think it's a good question, and I, I don't have a good answer for it, but I do think it's a, it's an interesting way of thinking about how managers can frame those conversations with people, especially in non-sales uh, environments, to talk about you know uh, manage, management you know uh, goals that are objective based, uh, things like that. Those are often well, they're just more successful when they're participatory, and and so it might be framed in in, in a manager could frame it as here's three things that I was thinking about. Where do you want to be? Yeah, I could see that happening. Well, and it was interesting because one of the things that got me thinking about this was his, he said, you know, and I'll quote here, the nice thing about participatory goals is not necessarily the goal commitment is higher. It's that the goal itself is often higher. And the research that you've shown now, granted, it's also there's the exponential uh, increase in, in the award value, right, that you have. But you've seen that people, when they're given that choice, tend to pick higher than what a manager would have necessarily picked for them. Right. Uh, in BI Worldwide's patented Gold Quest product, the awards increase exponentially. So it's a, it's a 1x at the first level, it's 3x at the second level, and it's 6x at the, at the highest level. And that's, the, that's the general formula. But of course, that gets changed in context. But generally speaking, that's, that's the, the general approach. And so to, have, to be able to earn six times the amount of reward than uh, at the top level and at the bottom level, typically the effort doesn't increase exponentially as well. Typically, it's more it's more linear. You know, it's it's a five percent increase. It's a seven and a, at first level seven percent increase at the second level and a ten percent increase at the top level. Yeah. So they don't harmonize perfectly on effort to reward. So that does draw people into into the higher levels. But the fact is that the largest number of people select at the highest level, and that highest level is yields the greatest uh, achievement as well hmm. by far. More yeah. people achieve at, at the most aggressive level than at lower levels. Well, and again, higher higher goals uh, get higher performance. Uh, con completely consistent with the literature in that regard. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. What else? Uh, what else struck you, Kurt? Well, uh, I got to talk about goal priming, right? <sighs> this is this is where I was. You know, when I reached out to to Dr. Latham, this was this was my hook for him um, because it's it's one of the things that you know has been fascinating me for a number of years now is is this idea of priming and and how the subconscious priming impacts our behavior. And I know he's done some really cool research on it, and 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 he did, uh, but I. I, I was surprised. I did not know that he started out as, well, I did kind of know he started off as a skeptic, but the story he told about eating the computer paper. Oh, <laughs> I was thinking that, yeah. <laughs> fantastic. I mean, just the, the, the whole visual imaging around that and, and his whole idea of you know, I'm starting off and we're going to, we're going to prove this, this guy wrong. Cause we're not letting it into IO psychology. Well, Eat there it that. Is. I hope that computer paper tasted good because, and it, damn, he's still, he's still skeptical. He still has a that slight little bit of really, I, it, you know, I, he understands the literature. He knows all of the research that he did, two hundred plus papers, and yeah. yet he's still kind of going. Gosh, I just. It's just so hard to believe. Yeah, I, I loved his his thing when he goes, you know, we submit this to the research papers and the reviewers come back and say, no way. And he goes, yeah, I know, no way. <laughs> I don't believe it either. I was, he's, he, I, to that point, I think he still mm -hmm. is like, I can't believe this. I can't under, you know. Uh, so I, I think that bodes well. What, what I really loved about that is that's how science should work. That is what the scientific method is. It is this idea of, 
changing your beliefs based upon the data and the research and not holding on to beliefs just because that's what you thought before. That's how you were raised. That's the way that, you know, the world should operate. It's not about should, it's about how does it operate. And so it's it's understanding the reality of the world. And so, yeah, I can't explain it, but obviously it, it's happening. So now let's, let's research that. Let's find it more. And I need to shift my mindset from a priori belief A over here to what the research and what the data is pointing to over here uh, in, in, you know, now B. So yeah, go with the data. Go with that, the data. That, that's it. Uh, I also loved, uh, he's got such great examples of priming, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, talking about, uh, you know, great classic studies, you know, uh, right with the, the waiting room and the, the, the magazines piled up or, or the woman crossing the finish line, you know, in the call center and the watermark, the watermark. It's like, man, you know, these are just, oh, they're so rich and so wonderful because they're so vivid. And, you know, and I, you know, I have used examples like that to persuade business executives to, to make choices about, uh, about the way that they're, they're framing uh, incentives and the way that they communicate and they have positive effects in the real world. But I love the way he told them, he told them as stories, right? It wasn't yeah. just, here's yeah. the research. Here's the, here's the data. Here's how we set it up. It was the stories of how he, uh, that he, he yeah. brought and the, the, the narrative aspect of it. Uh, and then the way he explained it, I think is fascinating, but yes, that great research brought up and he could have, I'm sure he could have gone on and on and on, you know, 200 plus research. I'm sure he could have told stories for, you know, hours and hours around this. And, and we would have been, I would have just, just sat there and listened. It would have been great. We just could have, we hit record and we could have just let it go. I would would have loved it. Um, He certainly touched on something that is near and dear to our hearts. And that was ethics. Yeah. And that was just terrific. Wasn't it? I mean, to just hear him so passionately and so deliberately, uh, speak in support of the ethical application uh, of this stuff is really, really important. I just thought that that was terrific. I, I was heartened to hear him say that they had talked about this at that the conference that he was at, and and particularly that he said, you know, there's no evidence, and I'm quoting here, there's no evidence that goal priming can influence you to do something that's not in your behavioral repertoire. Yeah, that. It's a, a, it's heartening because I, I didn't necessarily know that, um, even though I've studied this for a long time, uh, I wasn't sure about that. So that's good to know that the research, at least at this point, says that you can't, you're not going to prime somebody to go out and commit a mu- murder. You're not going to prime somebody to do something against, the, no. you know, their own self-identity. It has to be in alignment with what they're already committed to doing or their goals and various different internal aspirations that they may have. That being said, I think there's some real positive aspects that organizations should be using some of this priming for, but I also think that they need to be cautious because uh, we don't like being or feeling that we're being manipulated. And this can get to a point of feeling like it's manipulating. And that is a big faux pas if if that comes out and is done in a manner where you feel like it's manipulating. Um, but I do think organizations can use this. At the same time, uh, we have to think about the ethics of the, the participants. When I think about sales incentive programs, specifically in the automotive industry, you know, there was sort of a backroom kind of nudge, nudge, uh, wink, wink kind of a thing where, where uh, the 
the people in the automotive business would sometimes say, well, you know, if you're not cheating, you're not trying. Mm-hmm. And they're like, you know, that's, if that is the, the culture, if somehow that is to some degree being accepted, then you have to think about that in the, in the design of your program. That mm-hmm. ne- you need to be aware and think about the ethics of the participants themselves too. Well, I'll go back to the conversation we had with uh, it live when we did the the recorded session at the meetup with with Rod Wagner and um, John Harris. You know, talking about this idea. You know, can companies use behavioral science to get people motivated and do things, and just then reduce the amount that they actually pay them or reward them for this? Right. And this could be seen as as something along that line too. So it it really does have some ethical considerations that need to be taken into account. But again, to his point, hey, if if you're already being a salesperson out there, right, and you know you want to, you know, if you're getting rewarded for for performing better and performing you know, more efficiently or more optimally. And the company puts in a picture behind the sales literature that is coming out for you to read. That's of this woman running through a finish line tape and it helps you stay motivated throughout the day. Even if you don't realize that, I don't see a problem with that. I don't see that that is an issue. The idea of having a CEO who's giving their Monday morning email, rah-rah email, and to include some more action-oriented words in that, I don't see a problem in in that. Actually, I see positives in right, that's that. That's a good thing. Yeah. I, I think agree. some really high positives. And I think organizations don't do this enough. It's a big miss, huge, huge miss by organizations to think through how their offices are set up. What are the posters that they have on the wall? Should be intentional about that stuff. You need to be intentional because it's influencing us, even if it's not intentional. And so it may be detrimental to performance. You might be doing everything else right, but you have the wrong images up on the wall, which are actually decreasing people's performance. And so that's not positive by any means. And so be intentional about it and think through it. Mm -hmm. I think about uh, even naming your conference rooms. I remember going to a company that they had their main conference room called the war room. Yeah. And and that's a that's got a really negative connotation. There's really no reason to to do that with all of the priming and subconscious things that, that get associated with war. Uh, bad news. Don't do that anymore. But those are the things that we don't we don't think about, right? We, war rooms. Uh, all right, this is what it is. It's kind of that war planning thing game. But you don't think about how people respond to that. We don't think about those cues yeah. that we take from the language that we use. You know, there's lots of research on environmental factors, too, of, you know, having windows versus not having windows and getting sunlight in there in various different pieces. There's lots of things on the color. There's a whole psychology around color and and how color impacts our moods and and behaviors. We have to be thinking about those things. And granted, sometimes it seems overwhelming. Uh, You know, we were just got off a a podcast that we were being interviewed on and we were talking about all of the nuances and context that go into play within behavioral science. And sometimes it can feel overwhelming that while you shift one little thing and it totally throws off everything else. And that's true. But we also, you know, we need to be aware of those things. And organizations don't think about that enough. They're they're focused in on other things. And granted, 
that's the role of many people, but you should be bringing in behavioral scientists to be thinking through this and how you can optimize operations throughout this. Yeah. And they don't have to be this, this isn't about bonuses or spending more money. This is about just actually making your organization more effective through the way that you communicate and the, the, and the things that you've got on the walls and that you the way you talk to people. The kind of words that a CEO uses influences an organization. Well, and communication departments inside organizations, this is key. This is, this is huge. And, and it's, I have been so disappointed so, so disappointed in communication departments within companies and the just the language that they use, uh, this downbeat, you know, negative language and this idea of, well, we're just telling it like it is. Yes, but you do, do you understand the implications of what that is? The idea that you can communicate an incentive plan and just tell the facts, but you, you're you not doing anything to really engage people around the goals, around how they should be thinking about this and getting them excited about it and saying, well, the, the comp plan is what the comp plan is. Why would we need to do it? It should be motivational enough and just by itself. And you're going, no, you need to tell a narrative that uses the appropriate words to align with the strategy of what you're trying to achieve. Which reminds me of a conversation we had with Victoria Schaefer about talking to the the providers of uh, of care for her dad as he was going through cancer treatment. On one hand, all they could do is provide the facts. There's a twenty percent chance of this happening. You know, there's a there's a fifteen percent chance of your dad getting sores in his mouth. Okay. Well, you know, we can we can live with that. That sounds really that sounds pretty good. That the narrative, the the reality of her dad's experience was horrible. He he had to have a breathing tube because the sores actually constricted his ability to breathe. Yeah. So so a narrative or a story around around what that means could have added so much context and information to help them make a better decision. Yeah. And and without that, you know, numbers are passionless. Yeah, they're, they're just they're just they have no no passion, no feelings. Who was it that said, you know, um, stats aren't emotional or numbers aren't emotional? Uh, somebody we, we had talked to recently, but that's, that's uh, Anurag, been, Anurag Vice. Said there you go. Yeah, yeah. Where and I, I, I've, I've vastly misquoted him, I'm sure. But it's this idea that we are emotional creatures. And, you know, this priming aspect is a key to that. Right. We yeah. we respond to action oriented words we respond to emotional cues those things are are important and if we're not purposeful about it if we're not thinking through how these impact the behavior and the response that we get then we're not being good stewards of the resources and the opportunities that we have with our employees and with the people that we work with. So, and the the last thing I want to talk about on, on here is just his idea of safety and wanting to try to get this in on safety, because I think absolutely, if there is any way that we can prime people to be safer in the workplace and to take the caution and thinking and motivation in order to be safer, that's a win-win across the board. Uh, and, and we need to be doing that more more often. So if any of our listeners have an opportunity, because I know he's looking to try to do some field experiments. And so we would be happy to connect you with Gary on that. So what did you think about uh, 
one of your big questions is prompts versus primes. You know, ah. this is, you love, you love, 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 love primes. Well, and I'm, yeah. And I'm realizing that my whole sock theory, I probably have a little bit of it wrong in, in how I've been thinking about it for years and years that this is a prime when in fact, when I put my socks on, it's probably more of a prompt. That being said, is a prompt versus a prime? What's the difference? I think I, I, I would love to get Gary back on because I just, I, I now have an, another question to ask him is, you know, is there a difference in performance between a prompt and a prime? Do, do we care? Uh, and, and I think we probably don't. We may even have higher performance based on a prompt because it's a conscious effort and it goes to right. your conscious goals and what he was talking about with that and really reminding that. And I, I think about it maybe as there's some research that I would love to see if it's being done, but do prompts actually then allow our unconscious primes to be more readily available? In other words, am I greasing that yes. neural pathway uh, because I put my Einstein or my Roden thinking socks on in the morning very purposefully? So now am I actually engaging those neural pathways around what I'm trying to do so that when I just subconscious, you know, I just kind of, you know, happen to see my socks later on in the day and I don't consciously think about them, but are those neural pathways primed now because of the prompt I did in the morning to be more activated? And so is it easier to prime something in that manner? That'd be some cool research. That would be really neat to see. I would love to see that too, because it reminds me of a wonderful conversation we had with a telco call center manager. So she's responsible for like 500 people uh, in, in a call center. And she said, every, she said, she always starts every meeting with happy Monday. Happy Monday, happy Tuesday, happy Wednesday, happy Thursday, happy Friday. Every day is a happy day. So she she's using that prompt to let everybody know this is the page I'm on. And I'm inviting you to get on that page too. And I love that. I love, and she's so, of course, she's a terribly upbeat and, and happy person and, and encouraging, but also a really smart manager. And I think she's using behavioral science in a really effective way. Yeah. Again, language matters. The words we choose matter. And Absolutely. happy Monday is very different than, hey, let's get started with this, with this meeting. <laughs> yeah. You're setting a different different tone. It changes. Uh, what What is interesting to me about a lot of this work is, again, we've talked about context matters. We talk about how uh, our brains process things. The idea that at the beginning of a meeting, if we set the tone, we set the, the, the environment in in one way, it changes how people interpret what we say. It changes how people process that information. And if we can be purposeful and positive about that, we are going down the pathway, the really positive pathway to get people to respond in a way that is more appropriate. And so why not use that? So exactly. Why not? That's, mm -hmm. that's really the question. Why not? Yeah. Bring in some experts to help you do this because, again, context matters. And I, I use the example of, well, loss aversion is stronger. You know, it's two times more painful to lose something than it is to gain the equivalent. Uh, and so we should frame our messaging from a loss messaging because that will be more motivational for people. I've heard people in, you know, who have read 
the research uh, on that and, you know, maybe have read Predictably Irrational or Danny Kahneman, you know, thinking fast or slow, but you have to be cautious. You have to think about that because it has other connotations uh, in kind of the culture that you're building and some of the other things that you're priming in people's people's minds when you're bringing in loss first versus gain. So this is where some expertise and experience can, can really help by deciding on is the context that we that we used in a particular study relevant enough to the situation in the working world to say, yeah, let, let's use that. I think that that, you know, and having a grasp of what the literature is, those those things help make contextual decisions uh, more accurate, and more effective. And doing testing, right? Compare, oh, doing best. some experiments. The best. Yeah. Make, let's, let's test out these messages, particularly if it's going to be a key message that is going to a large audience within the organization. And again, I, f- I keep falling back into incentives because that's a lot of the work that we do. We do in- we do incentive communication. We do total reward communications. Trying to get clients sometimes to, to do some testing up front with different messaging is like pulling teeth. It can be, well, why, you should just know this. And I'm going, well, we have the literature we can base this on. We have the experience that we know, and we know it's worked in other situations, but we don't know, given your current culture and the situation that you're in, which of these is going to be best. And we should run some experiments. And it doesn't take that much longer, doesn't cost that much more, but God, it seems really really bad that a lot of companies just don't want to do that. It seems like extra work. And I know they're already, you know, jammed in different things, but we can, we can help with that. It also answers that, uh, that concern that I get a lot have over the years. I would, no, 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 Tim, my people are different. (laughs) So if your people are different, let's actually test it on your people. Yeah, actually, because let's, that's let's really out. what's good. Then let's find out how different they are. Yeah. And, and this goes back. Uh, so I'm going to weave this into induction versus deduction, even though it's <laughs> a very tenuous weave here. No, that's a good one. This good idea bridge. of looking at things and creating your theory based on the evidence, this inductive way of looking at things versus coming up with a theory and then experimenting to find out if that theory is true, I think is really interesting. And I know Gary had some strong opinions on that and he expressed them really well, but my, I'm going on this. I think we can take this to the next level, which is, do we do that ourselves, right? Do we do this beyond the field of research? Do we do this with our own beliefs that we we form a belief and then we almost, you know, it's confirmation bias, motivated reasoning. We're looking for things to confirm that belief versus let's just look at the data. Let's look at the facts and then let's form our belief from those facts. And I think too often we are in the former versus in the latter. Doesn't mean that we don't use facts to inform our our decision. That, that whole story of, um, you can tell uh, sort of uh, a bright person by asking the question, well, when was the last time you learned something? And if they really have to think hard, it's like, I can't really, really remember. Well, 
that might not be that might be a sign that they're not that bright of a person because they're not learning new things. Really sharp people are learning new things all the time and adjusting. Even Phil Tetlock talked about adjusting the super forecast based on new data. Yeah. You know, bring in bring in new new approaches and and new points of wisdom and use those to help to help us inform and create new perspectives. That said, it is really hard to do that. I, I have to be really intentional and say, I'm going to look at what the actual data says. I go back to Annie Duke and thinking in bets and and using a probability perspective on this that I'm 90% sure of this belief or even 99% sure of this belief, but I'm not 100% because right. that allows that new data coming in now isn't a personal affront to us. New data is informing our 90% belief. And now the data is showing a, something different that I wouldn't have expected given that belief. So maybe my belief now comes down to an 80% or a 70%. Or if the data is such great, it's now down to a 2% uh, piece of this. So yeah, yeah. Uh, it's our mindset going into this, but it's also this idea of being using this inductive process in our own beliefs and various different pieces. It's real. Yeah, it's real. And we can improve. That's yeah. the cool, cool thing is we could do better. And the last thing I want to say, he talked about Locke and Latham, Latham and Locke and to Kahneman and Tversky, Tversky and Kahneman. And I'm thinking, you know, those are great <laughs> people out there, those those tandems that work. And I'm like, going, is anybody ever going to say Hulhan and Nelson, Nelson and Hulhan? Are they going to be going? <laughs> we are. <laughs> you know? Oh, if only we could get to the part where where we're up there. That would be oh, fantastic. I, I, I That's a goal. Is that a specific goal? Can Would that be considered a, it might a, be. a specific goal or an attitudinal goal? I don't know. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, if we could only get to the point where our wives think that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I I hope we're not like Locke and Latham where we outlast our wives, right? So, <laughs> no, no, yeah, yeah, I don't want to do that. Um, yeah, there we go. All right. So with that, folks, hang out and uh, check out the bonus track. Kurt's going to lead us through that. Hey, Groovers, this is Kurt with the bonus track. We were so grateful and thrilled to have Dr. Latham on the show. It is great when you get to meet one of your heroes and talk with them, and this was one of those cases. So let's review. First, goal setting theory says that specific goals lead to higher performance than more general goals, and that higher goals lead to higher performance compared to easier goals with some boundary conditions, such as things as ability to achieve the goal and your commitment to the goal. Organizations tend to focus on performance goals, but don't often think about learning or behavior goals, which may also be powerful motivators. This is a big miss. Second, goal priming is real. While Gary started out as a skeptic and a non-believer, he was converted by the research. Our behaviors are influenced at a subconscious level by pictures, words, and other things in our environment. By activating neural pathways in our brains, we are more likely to do behaviors based on those subconscious cues. Organizations should be aware of this and utilize primes in an ethical manner to help employees achieve more. Third, prompts and primes are different. 
but we can often use them together. We might be able to activate the neural pathways with a prompt and make it easier for a prime to take hold or for a behavior to happen. More research needs to be done in this area. Lastly, too often we form a theory based on deduction alone. This isn't only in research field, but also in our own lives. This can lead to poor theories that as they are unduly influenced by our own biases. We should start with induction, looking at the evidence before we end up with deduction. All right, time for the groove idea of the week. Think about a goal that you want to achieve this week. Could it be finishing a project or maybe riding your bike at least four times? What are the prompts that you can build into your environment to help you achieve that goal? Put up a post-it note on your computer, wear some motivational socks, whatever it is, do something to prompt yourself and then make sure you do it uh, often, that it's there and it's out there so that it can maybe work both in a direct and an indirect level. Once you've done that, let us know how it goes. Did you achieve your goal for the week? And lastly, we want to thank you all for listening. We do this because it's a passion for us and we are so grateful that you listen. Please let us know how we are doing and anything we can do to improve. You can reach out to us through the comments section on the Behavior Grooves website or find either Tim or I on Twitter or LinkedIn. So with that, stay safe and make it a great week. Mm-hmm.